Well, let's pray and jump into our uh, apologetics time this morning. Can what? Yeah. Step in. Oh. <laughs> oh, we need to. We need to get. Okay, I won't even try. Oh, let's just let's just pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for today. I thank you that we can know that. Uh, your word is true. I thank you, Lord, that even as we see different uh, experiences that people have and people say they have these different uh, experiences and stuff that we can always rest upon and, and rely upon the truthfulness of your word and we can always come and rest in that. I pray, Lord, that as we uh, walk through some apologetic material today that you would uh, encourage us. I pray that you would edify us, strengthen us, and uh, Lord, that we may have a firm confidence in the truthfulness and trustworthiness of your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, picking things up where we kind of left things off last week as we uh, continue to talk about apologetics and start working into the trustworthiness of the Scriptures themselves. Uh, we talked about how there are several aspects. You know, we're, we're in this section on answering claims, it kind of playing defensive apologetics. Uh, so if I were to take us back to our chart... Um, you know, there's the offensive side of things, there's the defensive side of things, the offensive, we're taking every thought captive, we're, we're destroying strongholds and every lofty opinion that raises itself up against the knowledge of God, we're critiquing unbiblical worldviews. Well, then there's defensive apologetics, which seeks to give an answer to, uh, there's truth claims that are coming against us, coming against a biblical worldview, and we're pushing back against those things, we're pro- providing answers for those things. And so we spent some time talking about different arguments. They call them theistic proofs. And we know that there is sufficient evidence in the world, and yet, what is man doing? Suppressing and replacing, right? Mankind is suppressing and replacing truth. And, and so a lot of times, these arguments, we may have the perfect and most logical arguments, and they're going to be very edifying and very convincing for us as believers. But an unbeliever is, is going to be rejecting them because he is suppressing and replacing the truth. We need uh, the Spirit of God to be at work within an individual's heart and life, and we pray for His, wor- uh, his role to be, to be evident there. As we continue to move into our section, uh, again, answering truth claims that are coming against a biblical worldview, there is the claim that the Bible cannot be trusted. You have the Bible as your foundation of truth. The Bible is your authority. But the thing is, you can't even trust and rely upon your Bible. I'm not going to accept the authority of the Bible, and here's my reasons why. And there's usually several parts of this argument and different people. Most people aren't super well-versed on all of the arguments, but they may have one that they kind of rely upon more heavily. They might say, well, the Bible's not been faithfully preserved. And we're going to talk more about this today and maybe some of the other ones depending on time. But we're going to definitely talk about this today. Uh, So I won't spend a lot of time now. They might say, well, the Bible's not historically accurate. There's historical inaccuracies. There's things in the Bible that there's no evidence for in our archaeological records. In fact, there's evidence that there's maybe conflicting data and such. Some might say, well, the Bible is merely a human product. Like, it's just written by man. It's not written by God, it's not divine, it's just a human product, and there's evidence of that because look at these different things that they might bring up. 
Well, let's start by answering some of these claims. And we, we discussed last week a little bit about some others that... Uh, um, I was about to go Lex next. I'll hold on until you take your picture there. Um, the first claim that the Bible has not been faithfully preserved. Different ways that people might approach this argument. They might say, well, we don't have the original documents, so we can't be sure that the Bible says today what it said at the beginning. Maybe thousands of years ago, we did have the Word of God. Maybe. Let's just say that for the sake of the argument, maybe that's true. But there's no way that we ha- what we have today accurately represents those things. We have just copies of copies of copies. We don't have the original. So it's like a game of telephone. Now, we played a game of telephone the other day, didn't we, Yakar? And there's a, uh, when I was, I, I taught some of this material for a uh, a youth group class one day, and we actually played a game of telephone as part of the lesson there. I'm not going to make us do that today. <laughs> but we all know how the game of telephone works, right? There's this one person who's got something, they whisper it to the next person, and then who whispers what they heard, and so on and so forth. And you get to the end, and that person says out loud what they heard. And usually it's nothing like the original thing, right? Like it's, it's been changed. Sometimes if you've got some particularly... Uh, uh, ornery kids, they might intentionally change the words. And there's the argument that in copies of copies of copies, you've got some scribes who intentionally change things to suit their theology, to suit what they believed. As such, we do not have an accurate account of what was originally written. What do we say to stuff like this? How would you respond People who claim that the Bible has not been historic, has not been preserved accurately, that what we have today does not accurately represent what was originally written. How do we respond to those claims? Mm-hmm. Yes. And when we compare the when we compare the text, it's Yeah, it's amazing that yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is the other part is when we have multiple copies, like we just copies and copies, people are learning in the languages can do a textual criticism and we can see oh we become familiar with what the patterns of errors are and other substitutions. Yeah, so I'm just going to repeat that for the sake of our recording and such. Uh, evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, some of the earliest, before we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of the earliest manuscripts of the Old Testament we had was roughly around 81,000-ish give or take a few hundred years, right? And then the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and that takes us back a few hundred years before Christ. Like, that's, that's a significant find. 
and we find that the manuscripts that we had from AD 1000 and the manuscripts that we find from the Dead Sea Scrolls from like, I think it's like uh, four to 300 BC, something in that range, uh, they line up, they match up. So that's, it's a remarkable thing. You were going to say something? Yeah. I think what you're getting at is the issue, again, this goes back to the question, is, is the issue the evidence? The issue is not the evidence, right? It's, it's the heart of man who's in rebellion against God and what God has said. There is sufficient evidence, but the unbeliever is rejecting that evidence in pursuit of his own sinful desires. So when, even if we present someone with the perfect evidence of, of, oh yeah, the Bible is the Word of God, the reality that they're still going to reject it is very potential. Like, it's, a very thing. It's, it's a thing there because of sin. It's not because of the evidence itself. Suppress and replace, right? Yes. So the purpose of these of, of reviewing this apologetic material is not to arm yourself with a bunch of ammunition that you can just shoot down unbelievers and like like we we spent some time at the beginning of our uh, in some of our apologetic uh, foundational concepts we're not trying to own somebody right like yeah bring the smackdown we just destroyed your argument yeah like it's it's not about a smackdown right. The purpose of reviewing some of this material is not necessarily to convince someone, but when people bring objections, we can counter that and say, no, that's not true, and we have reasons why. It's very encouraging and, and bolstering for us and our faith. We know it's ultimately not going to be convincing, but what it does, it removes the surface-level objection so that we can get to the heart of the matter. And I'm going to circle back around to that after we kind of go through a lot of these a lot of objections that get raised up against, okay, we'll, we'll address, okay, there's, we've armed ourselves, we can answer these different arguments, okay, that's all well and good. These ultimately are going to convince someone of truth that they are already suppressing and replacing. But it is helpful for us to be able to, okay, I, you've raised an objection, let me answer that, it's out of the way, now let's deal with the root issue. Type of thing. And we'll come back around to how we employ these in our everyday kind of conversations 
at a later point. We'll get to that. Well, it's it's the it's two slides from now, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll deal with one issue at a time. So for now, the the question of the telephone game, what is the truth? We have the most copies of any old books. So if you look into all the books of antiquity, we think of Homer's Iliad. We think of Julius Caesar's The Gallic Wars all these different books of antiquity, and we look at how many manuscripts there are available to us from those books, and it's a very, and I'm going to have a graphic on the screen in a minute to illustrate it. It's like, it's just a handful of copies. It is a very small amount. Yeah, yeah. So we, and... And not only do we have more copies than just the three, right? We have the oldest copies of any old books. So if you look at the time gap between when the book was originally written and the earliest known manuscript for something like Gallic Wars or Homer's Iliad or some of these other early works, it's hundreds of years in between when the book was supposed to have been written and the earliest surviving copy that we have of that work. Hundreds of years. For the Bible, the earliest known manuscript is within 100 years. In fact, it's just a matter of decades in between when it was written and the earliest known manuscript that we have, which is remarkably, remarkably different. In addition to that, because we have so many copies, we can compare the later copies with the earlier copies, and see, do these line up? And they are remarkably close, even identical in many places to the older copies. There are variants, and we will get to the variants in just a couple of minutes. Um, but we just have this amazing, remarkable overlap between these things. So we have the most copies of any old books, the oldest copies of any old books, and the remarkably close in time, uh, or the remarkably close overlap in content between the older copies and the later copies. Graphical representation of this. Now, it might be hard to read some of this. Let me pull up my laser pointer. I mentioned Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars was written roughly 50 B.C. The earliest known manuscript that we have is not until nearly a thousand years later in 980, and there's only 10 manuscripts that exist of Gallic Wars. And yet, uh, historians and scholars have no qualms accepting that, yeah, this has faith, been faithfully preserved, that this is, whether or not it's accurate history, it, it is at least accurately uh, the same document as original. Compare that to the New Testaments, which is written between you know, 80, 40, and 100, depending on which book of the Bible you're examining. And the earliest known manuscript that we have can be dated to, now, when I wrote, made this, um, actually should amend this uh, graphic. I created this graphic myself, and at that time, there was a manuscript that was claiming to be first century, before AD 100. 
the date for that manuscript has been revised, and they say they don't believe it's from AD 100, before AD 100 anymore. They think it's in the 200s, um, or at least in after AD 100. So maybe second century. Which is in still incredibly early. Yeah. You look at the comparison of the gap between something like Gallic Wars and this. It is remarkably different. And now, again, this I made this graphic in 2016. 5,700 manuscripts uh, of portions of the New Testament that had been discovered. There's been more discovered since then. Like, I don't know what the current number is, but it's just, it's, it's only grown. Like there, there's just so many witnesses and uh, to what the New Testament said. So we have there's just an immense amount of data to say, okay, look, whatever else you might say about the Bible, we can be very confident that it was accurately preserved. Like b- people are going to say whatever they're going to say, but we can be very, very confident that at least what we have today is an accurate representation of what was written. Now, someone is going to object. Now, this is what you were saying, Jim. Ah, but there's multiple variants. We have all those manuscripts, but they don't all agree. In fact, there's not two manuscripts that are identical and alike. They're all very different from each other. Now, we can respond and say, well, to a degree, that's true, but what are the nature of those differences? They're incredibly minor. We're talking about errors in spelling. We're talking about variations and how, like, you think about the, the, way, um, the way we spell the word color here in America and the way the, uh, the English spell the word color over in, uh, across the pond. Yeah, there's that extra U in there, right? Uh, or savior, or all the, all the words that end like that, right? They do like their U's. Well, that's the way it used to be spelled everywhere. And over time, Language changed and spelling changed. And so there's a difference in spelling. Uh, that's happened across the English language in a variety of places. Well, that's happened in Greek too. Like Greek wasn't a static language. There were a lot of variations and changing in how spellings happened. And uh, in fact, there were whole letters that have, I don't know if you know this, there's letters that used to be part of the English alphabet that are no longer part of the English alphabet. We just don't use them anymore. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing in Greek. There were Greek letters that used to exist that don't exist anymore, so there are some spellings that were, are adapting to that, la- to that change. And so we see some of these, that, that's what's going on in many of the variations in manuscripts is just the evolution of the language. What's more remarkable than the disagreements are the agreements. The fact that there is such remarkable agreement across all of these texts is so much more remarkable 
and more noteworthy than the differences. And like what you were saying earlier, we can compare and contrast and so we can identify the differences and there and through a process determine what the likely original readings were. We can look at uh, which manuscripts were the earliest and compare those with the later ones. We can look at the geographical spread of the manuscript witness. So if there's a particular reading that is both very old and widespread geographically, that's more likely to be an accurate reading than a reading that is newer and only localized to one particular area. We could talk about the job of the scribes who transposed a lot of this stuff, or they, their, their job and their reputation is staked upon faithfully preserving what was there. Well, they did their job well, like remarkably well. Yes. have so much data that it leads to a very high degree of confidence. I, the, um, um, my Greek professor was talking about how we can be, what we have today is over 99, probably 99.9% sure of the consistency with whatever the original document. And any differences that are there are so minor that it's not going to affect any th- any truth of doctrine. It's not going to affect um, it's not going to affect anything of significance. Uh, so it, it, maybe we're looking at spelling differences and we're looking at stuff like that. But we are so have such a wealth of information that the conclusion that we can draw is that the Bible has been faithfully preserved. Now, a lot of this data that we've looked at is talking about the New Testament. We mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, I wish I had pulled up some of the information and put it up on here about some uh, Old Testament stuff as well. But there was a, 
there's a manuscript that was discovered, but it, was, it had been through a fire. There was a, 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 a monastery that had burned down, and they found this scroll that if you touch it, it falls apart. But they found out that they could stick it inside this machine that's designed actually to help, um, help cancer, like uh, identify cancers and stuff. And they digitally unrolled it. It's more sophisticated than a standard MRI. But they digitally unrolled it based on all the different layers and scans that they did, and they were able to read what's there, which is so remarkable in so many ways that they were able to reconstruct it in this way. And they were able to compare the manuscript with existing manuscripts, and what was in that scroll was a portion of the book of Leviticus. And for the portion that they had, they didn't have the whole scroll, and they didn't have anything more than Leviticus, but it was Leviticus, matched letter for letter, not a single difference with existing manuscripts that we had from Leviticus. And they believed that this manuscript predated our earliest manuscripts by several hundred years. So we have these different data points where we see, okay, we've got something from like 700 BC. We've got something from 300 BC. We've got something from 1080. And they all match. Like that is remarkable testament to the preservation of the text. I'll have to look up the details on that. I, I don't recall off the top of my head. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if they can date this scroll that had suffered through the fire because of its, because, yeah, I'm trying to find a, I'm trying to find a date. The, the fire itself was in um, AD 600, which predated the Masoretic text. So the, the, the fire was in AD 600. The scroll obviously would have to have been before that but I don't think they can date it with any more precision than that. So it's, it's a data point in between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the, Mater, and the Masoretic Text is what it is. Probably, depending on how old the, sc- the scroll actually is. So it's, 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 a, it's another important data point. So there are, we do have that conclusion. Let me get back to my thing here. The Bible has been faithfully preserved. We could be confident that what we have today accurately represents the teaching of what was originally in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, 
it's there, it's been preserved. And I'm not going to go any further. <laughs> I was about to go on, and then I saw the time and how so often we go over time, and I'm not going to do that today. So that's where I'm going to leave things today. We have, we'll look at some of the other objections that come against us uh, in future weeks. Um, there's, the, there's the claim that the Bible is not historically accurate, and that's what we'll look at next week. Uh, but for now, we, we can just be so, so thankful that we have the data points that we have. There's oftentimes there's uh, arguments that, well, you know, um, the Bible was changed to reflect particular strains of doctrine that were wanting to be pushed by certain subgroups of Christians. And so, you know, they would try to pull in things like the Gnostic Gospels and all these different books. And this, this gets into the question of canonicity, which historical books belong in the Bible. And we're going to address that in a future week as well. But the issue of canonicity, which books belong in the Bible, some people argue, well, there's different doctrine in some of these other books that got left out than what's in the Bible. So, what must have happened is that there were these subgroups of Christians that decided, no, we don't believe those things, we believe these things, or we'll, we'll change the text to match what we believe and so that it rules out those other things. And so it almost kind of becomes conspiratorial. A lot of times people will say this, that a lot of these things happened at the Council of Nicaea, uh, which is just utter bunk. Like you, you can go back and you can read the historical documents. Anybody who makes an argument trying to discredit the scriptures and they say the Council of Nicaea, you just automatically know they don't know what they're talking about, that they've never read any historical document from the Council of Nicaea itself. They're just echoing talking points that they saw in some atheist forum online because it's just not there. It's not true. There's no evidence to support it. There's no evidence to, to, to talk about that canonicity was, a, was at all even on the table at Nicaea. Like, that's not why they gathered. They gathered to address a different question. And so to try to argue that is just arguing that without any historical, it's arguing for the sake of argument, because it's a surface level objection, because the, because the issue isn't truth, the issue is that I'm suppressing and replacing. Yes. Yes. There, there were, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about a canonicity in future weeks. Yeah, that's coming. But I just, yeah. It, uh, it, it ties in a little bit with the issue of faithfully preserved because some people will say that the text was changed to reflect the doctrine that the people at Nicaea wanted it to reflect. And there's just no evidence of that. We have sufficient manuscript evidence pre-Nicaea to demonstrate, no, we actually, we still have today what was originally written. And that is such good news, is it not? Like, you know that the Bible that you have, this is the Bible granted, in a different language, but it's the same doctrine, it's the same text, it's the same meaning that it meant in A.D. 100, that it meant when it was originally written. When Paul wrote his letter to Colossians, we've got that letter. Like, that's incredible. And that's a testament to God's preserving work. No other book has had this level of preservation. <laughs> they don't, do they?
Yes. And I'll add one more thing to this discussion before we close. Sometimes people will respond with, well, yeah, well, that's because it's a religious text. Gallic Wars wasn't a religious text. Homer's Iliad wasn't a religious text. This is a religious text. And so that's why, you know, people were so keen to copy it. Correct. And that's what I was about to say. The Quran, there's a lot of very interesting monkey business with the Quran. And we can, I can pull up some of the decade, the documents on that. I don't have that in my PowerPoint, but I could pull up some of the documents on that where there, were, there have been significant changes over time and an intentional wiping out of the evidence of anything different previous. So like, yeah, they would, they would gather up the older copies and destroy them so that the newer copies was all that's available, intentionally destroying evidence. We have so much better evidence for the Scriptures in that there were times where there were times where the Bible was attacked and the Bible was burned and all that sort of stuff, but nothing on the level and with the malicious intent of the followers of the religion. Every time the Bible's been burned, it's been burned by unbelievers. It's the leaders, it's, it's the, the people who believed in the Quran or who wrote the Quran who were the ones that were trying to stamp out earlier versions of their own book. Similar things happen with the Book of Mormon. We've got, there's a lot of monkey business with the Book of Mormon. I'm going to close this there just because of time. Um, I'm trying to be more disciplined with getting us out on time so we can start our church service on time. Uh, so we're going to close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you that uh, we have so much confidence in the trustworthiness and the veracity of your word and that we know that it was faithfully preserved, that what we have today accurately reflects what you designed it to say at the very beginning. We praise you for that. It's the testament to the preserving work of the Holy Spirit. And we rejoice in that today. We thank you for it. And uh, we just pray that you would continue to edify us, bolster us in the faith, and Lord, if people bring these charges against us, Lord, we know that just a, a, a bare presentation of fact is not enough to convince because the issue is the heart and rebellion. But I do pray that this would at least be enough to remove surface level objections in some cases that we may get to the heart issues, that people may reckon with their accountability before you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.